The reading today is from Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you haven't already, feel free to open up your Bible, be it paper or electronic, or in your mind to Mark chapter 10. And let's start with some prayer. Our great God, we come before you this morning because we need our minds renewed according to your word. We need to take every thought captive according to Christ. Would you be so gracious as to do this for us this morning, for our good and your glory, because of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, last week, I was home with a sick kid, but hopefully most of you were here, and Pastor Jake preached on the Gospel of Matthew, setting that in the context of the greater story of redemption as we work our way through the entire scope of Scripture. And a natural question that you may ask yourself as we turn the page to the Gospel of Mark would be, didn't I just read this story? Why am I reading it again? And maybe you're tempted to just skip on to Acts, right? Let's get on with the story. But today, hopefully you'll see that Mark's Gospel voice is unique among the four Gospels. And one of the things that Mark does particularly well is draw the reader you and me, right into this story. But first, we should think to ourselves or ask ourselves, who is this Mark? Uh, And as best as we can tell, he's the John Mark of Acts 12, verses 12 and 25, Acts 13, verses 5 and 13, Acts 15, verses 37 to 39, Colossians 4.10, Philemon 24, 2 Timothy 4.11, 1 Peter 5.13, and maybe even Mark 14, 52. 
Eusebius was an early church historian. He was writing somewhere between the year of our Lord 313 and 326. So he's contemporary with the emperor Constantine and Athanasius, a few names you may have heard, and even a guy named Arius. He was the bishop of Caesarea Maritima, west of Samaria along the Mediterranean Sea. And in his book three of his church history, chapter 39, paragraph 15, he recalls for us this description of Mark. This also the presbyter said, he's referring to John here. Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately, though not indeed in order whatsoever, he remembered of the things said or done by Christ. For he neither heard the Lord nor followed him, but afterward, as I said, he followed Peter, who adapted his teaching to the needs of his hearers, but with no intention of giving a connected account of the Lord's discourses, so that Mark committed no error while he thus wrote some things as he remembered them. For he was careful of one thing, not to omit any of the things which he had heard, and not to state any of them falsely. So though he was not an apostle himself, this Mark was associated with both Paul and Peter, and was even Peter's translator. And interestingly, if you were to summarize the entire Gospel of Mark, if you opened to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 to 43, you would find that it follows nearly the exact same structure and emphasis as the entire Gospel of Mark. So Mark's Gospel, his opening, it launches us right into the thick of the story. You don't get the genealogy, you don't get a whole lot of background, but we are right in the story, and his pacing marches us right along. First verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Ooh, we're off and running. There's good news here regarding Jesus the Messiah, and I should know about him from Isaiah. So hang on to your hats. His use of Isaiah throughout is fascinating, by the way, but that's a whole different series of sermons. Mark even gets to Passion Week quickly and spends nearly a third of his gospel there. And the pacing that we mentioned is such that it seems like every other sentence starts out with, and then, so, in chapter 1 alone, buckle up, verses start like this, and all the country... And he preached, and when he came, and a voice came, the Spirit immediately drove him, and he was in the wilderness. Now, after John was arrested, and Jesus said to them, and immediately they left, and going on a little further, and immediately he called them, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, and they were astonished, and immediately there was, and the unclean spirit, And they were all amazed, and at once his fame spread, and immediately he left the synagogue. Now, Simon's mother-in-law, immediately they told him, and he came, and the whole city, and he healed many, and he would not permit, and rising very early, and Simon and those who were with him, and they found him, and he said to them, and he went throughout, and a leper came to him, and immediately the leprosy left him, and Jesus sternly charged him. Yeah, you get the idea. Now, on to Mark's ending, which is also quite unique and should capture our imagination. We have inherited actually four different endings in our manuscript tradition, and this is actually one of the great things about our scriptures. There are no secrets. 
No hidden committees that have sequestered great secrets from the masses. So apologies to any popular authors. Uh, but all the manuscript evidence from all of history is freely available for anyone and everyone to investigate to their heart's content. So two of the endings can be fairly easily left behind, which leaves us with two to consider. And likely in your Bible, if you flip over to chapter 16, you'll see verses 9 through 20 in brackets with a note that the earliest manuscripts do not include this longer ending. The shorter ending evidence is particularly early and also strong. If we think about how the text was transmitted and you have scribes copying by hand, they would have had the tendency to elaborate and expand with a thought to harmonizing with other Gospels they had copied, but not to cut stuff out. And some of the words and themes in this longer ending are peculiar to Mark. So, for that reason, I think the shorter ending fits best with the overall flow of Mark and the tincture of Mark's message. And don't be scared, don't be fooled. Remember, the photocopier didn't exist until 1949. So, uh, everything prior to 1949 was essentially done by hand. Even the printing press had movable type. So, this is the way God has preserved his text to us seems that the strongest evidence for the best ending of the Gospel of Mark would be to end at chapter 16, verse 8. And this leaves us with a group of disciples who have seen the empty tomb, and they were full of surprise and disbelief and fear and bewilderment. But I think this comports with the overall tone of Mark that lends itself to a story that beckons the reader or hearer to believe this message and join the redeemed in the new creation. So his beginning is unique, his pacing is unique, and his end is unique. And as we're drawn deeper and deeper into this gospel story, we ought to see that the gospel ransoms our imaginations. Okay? The gospel ransoms our imaginations. And by imagination here, I don't mean the thing that makes ideas up out of whole cloth or thin air, but instead the part of your mind that looks for patterns and connections in the world around us in order to form a coherent and logical picture of the whole. Your mind is always busy doing this work. It's always going to be shaped by something. And the question we will consider today is whether our imagination is at work making connections founded on the unchanging word of God or on some other standard. So with that in mind, let's dive into our text today, chapter 10, starting in verse 35. We'll look at verses 35 through 37, starting with one request. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Well, here we are, Mark chapter 10, following Jesus as he transitions his ministry from the north, from Galilee, down to Jerusalem. In chapter 8, Jesus begins this path to Jerusalem, and in chapter 11, he enters Jerusalem. So we're right at the tail end of this path. And what do we see here in verse 35? Two of his closest disciples, James and John, setting this ridiculous proposition before their Lord. We want you to do whatever we ask. 
Now, recall these are the two disciples that accompanied our Lord along with Peter to the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark 9, just a few pages back in your text. They saw Jesus robed in garments whiter than anyone on earth could bleach them. Now, there's just something awesome about a new package of white undershirts. You know what I'm talking about. I like to order the tall size. Uh, I'm slightly above average in height, but I like the tall size so they have a chance of being tucked in, staying tucked in. And I like to tell myself that it's more for that extra vertical dimension that I get the tall, not so much the horizontal deficiencies. Um, I take that shirt out of the package, and it's, it's gorgeous. It's white, it's crisp, it's soft and clean. It's really a shame to put it on, right? I know that once I wear it, that collar is going to get all warpy like a soggy noodle. The shirt that once tucked in all the way is going to find its way to become a crop top. And the armpits are going to take on a color and texture all their own. My wife is laughing. She knows. And all the Clorox in the history of the world would leave that undershirt, or even the brightest, freshest new one, as a filthy shop rag in comparison with the brightness of the glorious robe of our Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration. Even though James and John caught a glimpse of our Lord in his properly radiant glory, they misunderstood how this story would peak and what role they had to play. At this moment, in fact, James and John seem to be playing the role of the scribes and Pharisees much more than the role of disciples of Jesus. Uh, Charles Spurgeon put it this way, The genuine spirit of a Christian is not to ask that something should be done for him, but to ask his master what he could do for him. James and John misunderstood the story at the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, they're asking, should we set up a tent and you can rule from here and kick out all those awful Romans, return the kingdom to us? And they misunderstood it here. They have correctly inserted themselves in the story, but they have not inserted themselves in the story correctly. Despite their continued misunderstanding and how ridiculous their question was, our Lord replies with a gentle and gracious response. What do you want me to do for you? Our Lord knows the heart of his disciples and he knows they need eyes to see the story as it really is. And his question cuts right to the heart of the matter here in verse 36. It's not the response James and John were looking for, I'm sure, but it's the response they needed as it uncovers their request in all its nakedness in verse 37, where they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in glory. Now, though ridiculous, there's actually something right about this request. James and John were looking for glory, for glorification. And isn't that what we all long for? To be glorified with our Lord? To be fully sanctified, free from all remaining vestiges of our sin? To put off the perishable and put on the imperishable? To put off the dishonorable and put on the honorable? So they had the what somewhat correct, but they had the how Very, very wrong. Spurgeon again. 
Much was wrong about this request, and most have often heard that view. So I will call our attention to what was right about it. These disciples showed their faith that the same Jesus who was to be mocked, flogged, spit on, and killed would yet reign. And I think it was wonderful faith that after they had heard from his own lips in sorrowful detail the description of how he would die, yet nevertheless they so fully believed in his kingdom that they asked to have a share in its honors. They were ambitious, but their ambition was to be near the Savior. End quote. And how patient is our Lord with us when we ask the wrong question? Or demand answers to questions that aren't ours to ask? Or ask the right question with the wrong motives? Well, let's go back to the text and consider two responses in verses 38 to 41. Two responses. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. First, the response of our Lord in verse 38. You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Here he begins to correct their misunderstandings. You have the story wrong. There's only one hero in this story, and it's not you. There is a cup that our Lord had to drink, and none could drink it, but this particular seed of the woman. This cup was God's wrath against sin and the Messiah needed to drink it down to the bitter dregs. And there is a baptism which our Lord had to endure and none could suffer it except the sinless Son of Man. In this baptism language, we should recall images of being overwhelmed or covered up by danger or John the Baptist's baptism of repentance tied to the judgment of God. But we see in verse 39, they still don't get it, do they? They said, We are able. They take stock of themselves, briefly, and reply, we got this. And as readers who know the rest of the story, we want to scream, you dummies, you don't got this. You should know this by now. And we're tempted to ask ourselves how James and John could be so obtuse. They've walked with the Lord for years They've heard him foretell his death at least three times. How could they? But a better question would be, how are we obtuse, just like James and John? How do we ignore or miss the revelation that has been given to us? How do we fail to think God's thoughts after him? How do we fail to be grateful followers of our Lord Christ? we would be well served to ponder such questions. In our text, our Lord delivers what should be sobering news to James and John, far from the glorification their imaginations were seeking. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. That In a sense, their request would be answered, but not as they had imagined. 
No, there was a fulfillment coming that required the reformation of their imaginations. This comes to pass in Acts 12.2, where Herod has James killed by the sword, and John's exile by the Roman powers to the island of Patmos to live out his remaining years. And we enter a potential difficulty here. What did our Lord mean that it was not his to grant? Surely, he who is truly and verily God and truly and verily man, the God-man, must possess this authority, right? Well, this is true. But in his incarnation, his enfleshment, if you will, he came to perfectly fulfill the Father's will, not to do his own will. So, touching his manhood, these positions were not his to grant, but instead have been prepared in light of the triune Godhead's eternal decree. As the great theologian Francis Turretin was fond of saying, and so should we, we distinguish. The positions coveted by James and John were not up for grabs. They had been established by sovereign decree in eternity past. And the God-man would perfectly execute his office of mediator, such that the eternal decree would come to pass in perfection. Now the second response to consider here is that of the ten in verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Mark wants us to feel the contrast between the firm but gentle corrective response of our Lord and the indignant response of the ten. Spurgeon one more time. How sad the contrast is. The master's thoughts all taken up with his death for others and their thoughts occupied with little petty jealousies as to who should be the greatest. Why were they indignant? Because they were of the same spirit as James and John. They wanted those places themselves. As we see these stark contrasts highlighted by Mark, we ought to take careful notice of them and reframe our imaginations accordingly. Are our imaginations captive to a lie? Or have they been set free to think like Christ? Finally, Back to our text, verses 42 through 45, we will look at one reset. One reset. And Jesus called to, called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our Lord resets and retrains the imaginations of his disciples, and he does this with a practical example. Now, I want you to think really hard, like really, really hard, okay? Can you think of a time that you have seen authority or power misused? Just wait. Maybe you can recall a time when your boss or employer commanded you to do something that is outside their jurisdiction. Or perhaps a time that a civil ruler far away imposed rules or regulations that are not expressly granted to them or are not in their properly delegated sphere of authority and ought to be left to a lesser, more local magistrate. Now, you probably can't think of anything like that. But our Lord had a concrete example for his disciples with the rulers of the Gentiles lording their authority. 
Note, they were not wrong because they had authority, but wrong in the fact that they were proud and boisterous and ungrateful. Their authority was a good and proper gift, but they received it without thankfulness and twisted it to use for their own purposes. They did not confess that the God of all heaven and earth had given them this authority to rule as his deacon, his servant, the executor of his law, to promote those who do objective good according to his unchanging standard and to punish those who do evil according to the same. These rulers were using authority for their own pleasure and benefit, not the benefit of those they ruled. These rulers had convinced themselves of the wrong story. Look how our Lord corrects this in verses 43 and 44. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Among the disciples of Christ, authority looks different. In God's economy of redemption, the great don't seek their own greatness, but the greatness of others. Here at Redemption City Church, we have tried to live according to this pattern, this imagination in everything. And that extends even to our governing structure. There is not one elder who can lord authority over everyone else, or even a hierarchy within the eldership. But instead, there are however many elders the Lord sees fit to give us, each with an equal voice and authority over the others. We even have two co-equal staff pastors. And the elders don't rule with an iron fist, but lead with an iron resolve. And they are installed and removed as the congregation sees fit. If you want to know who is truly great at Redemption City Church, look for the ones serving in whatever form that may take. Now, I may have just made a lot of people uncomfortable as they're worried I will name them from the pulpit, but I won't do that to them. And know this, their service is seen by many here and by many more in heaven, including the one who sees all things and will be rewarded accordingly in the life to come. Do you see how this story is so different from what you see in the world? And we'll finish up our text today with the money verse, verse 45. All our chickens come home to roost right here, as our Lord gives us both the reason for us to reform our imaginations and also the how. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, to be served, excuse me, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If ever there were an example worthy to be followed, it is the incarnate Son of Man. He is much more than our supreme exemplar, but he is not less. Paul exhorts the church in Philippi in chapter 2 to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so should we, because the internal, the eternal word, full of power and majesty and glory, humbled himself and came as a servant, obedient to the end for us and for our salvation. In doing so, he ransomed us. But from what or from whom? Well, we ought not to understand this text as if Christ ransomed us from the devil, as if God owed Satan something. No, beloved, the triune God has never owed and will never owe Satan a single thing. Everything and everyone already belongs to him because he is the only creator and sustainer. Instead, we should understand ransom in the sense of delivering slaves or prisoners of war, being freed from captivity. The Messiah would voluntarily lay down his life in order to pay our sin debt to God, in order to secure our release from that which enslaves us, our own sin. And we will finish here with just a few brief points to hopefully put a sharp edge on what you've already heard. James and John's imaginations were captive to the lies of the world, but Christ freed them by his gospel. As we have worked through the Old Testament overview, book by book, over the last years, hopefully you've seen how Israel made the same error. They trusted in human resources like strong fighters and chariots and silver and gold and alliances with pagan nations, even trusting in false gods instead of trusting in the promises of Yahweh. And we do the same today in our own ways. Hopefully by this time, as this sermon winds down, your own imagination has started thinking about ways you see people living by lies all around you. And that's a good step. But what's much harder is determining what lies you and I are living by. Because toppling idols is painful. I'm here to tell you today with full confidence that Christianity tells a better story than everything. It tells a better story than Darwinism. It tells a better story than secular humanism. It tells a better story than feminism. It tells a better story than critical fill-in-the-blank theory. It tells a better story than anything. We need to unlearn much about the lies we've been believing and start learning or continue learning the gospel story and its demands on our lives more truly and more fully. Practically, this means we need to be people of the book. Tertullian, an early church father in North Africa, said, we meet to read the books of God. So, friends, read many good books, books, but live in the Bible. I'll never forget walking out of a movie theater with a dear brother who is not in this room today. He's busy working. But... We saw a movie that people had been waiting literally decades for, okay? One of the ones that people dress up in costume and sleep all night in order to catch that first showing. 
And as we walked out of the theater, I was in my mind trying to figure out if I thought it was actually a good story with compelling characters or if I just really enjoyed the nostalgia or some combination of that. And my mind is spinning silently inside my brain. And this brother turns to me and said something that I'll never forget. In total sincerity and seriousness, he said, yeah, that was okay, but it doesn't compare with the gospel. (laughs) I mean, holy Jesus juke. He put me to shame. But there's a brother who had his imagination enamored with the right things. Don't hear me saying, don't go see movies. That's not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying, be enamored with the best story. Secondly, I'm quite convicted myself here. But if we really believed what Hebrews 12 tells us is happening when we gather each Lord's Day, if we are, pick it up in verse 22, come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, if we really believed the second Helvetic Confession of 1566 that says, the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. How differently would we behave, would I behave during the sermon? I know I wouldn't find myself yawning or checking my watch or thinking that the sermon sure was a little long today. So kids... When your parents ask you to please pay attention to the sermon as best you can, it is for this reason. They want you to understand that the sermon is the absolute peak of the week. We have climbed to the top of God's holy hill to hear Jesus speak to us. So, fight your hardest not to let your imagination be captured by anything else. Accept no substitutes for nothing else will satisfy you. When the Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai and Yahweh descended on the mountain and lightning flashed brilliantly and thunder rolled powerfully and that thick glory cloud of Yahweh rolled off every little cliff and crevice, I know the Israelites weren't checking their sundials to see if it was time to go collect manna and quail. No Beloved, they trembled in reverent fear to hear what the Lord had to say to them. May our imaginations be so moved each Lord's Day. Finally, as we've worked through this series of the story of redemption as Scripture unfolds by further steps, I hope you've taken notice of the God who keeps his covenant, who is patient with his people, that they might repent and turn from their sin. So too, he has been patient with you and with me. And yet his patience has a chronological end. The Apostle Paul proclaims in Acts 13 that the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So, before that day arrives, I beg you to place yourself aright in the greatest story ever told. A sinner in need of a savior, and Christ that savior. His righteousness for you, your sin to him. Receive him today by faith alone. Let's pray. Father, the unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And we cling to that promise today as we seek to better comprehend the majestic person and work of our Savior on our behalf. Remove from our imaginations any false words or ideas that we heard today and instead settle your truth in us. Be gracious to us and grant us repentance that our imaginations might be reformed according to your true story. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life in your ways as our gaze is fixed on Christ. Amen.